This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, it's good to be back with you. My name is Will, and I'm the youth and college pastor here at Church of the Resurrection. And one of the perks of being a youth pastor is that you get to keep doing the things that you love to do when you were a teenager. Which means that for me this week, um, tomorrow, I'm leaving with a group of high school students to go to Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. Now, if you don't know, um, Cedar Point is the best roller coaster amusement park in the entire country. And my wife does not understand this. She hates roller coasters. Like, even the small roller coasters that, like, set up in the parking lots, she can't do those. And I realized that I love roller coasters, and she hates them for exactly the same reason, which is that they make you feel like you're going to die. <laughs> and you think about how unique the physical sensations of a roller coaster are. I mean, think about like the natural world, the non-roller coaster world. When would you have this experience of being thrown and jostled around and dropped and lifted up and accelerated? I can only think of two things. Okay, the first is like falling off of a cliff. Then you would have some of those sensations. The other is like if you had a bad encounter with a grizzly bear. You would also have some of those sensations, which just underlines my point. In both of those situations, you are about to die. And so some people respond with, that's traumatic and terrifying, and why would people do this? And then other people respond with this, like, euphoria, like, we're alive! Let's do it again! Well, have you ever, have you ever spoken to someone who's had a true near-death experience. I mean, not just like the simulation of it, but a true near-death experience. And maybe they survived an illness or they survived a, a significant accident. And it's remarkable that oftentimes you'll see the sense of clarity and the, and the calm that comes over them. I mean, the, the growth of the sense of possibility and gratitude and wonder simply at being alive. People who have come through a near-death experience, they're tuned into life. They're hyper-aware of the gift of even the small things, even just our very breath. They remind us, you're alive, and what are you going to do with this life that you've been given? Well, we're in this series on the letter to the Romans. We're on page 944, if you want to turn there this morning. We're in this series on the letter to the Romans, and last week, Caleb preached from Romans 7 about the feeling of being spiritually dead. You know what you want to do, but time and time again, you fail to do it. You feel stuck. You feel paralyzed. Maybe it's stuck in old sins. Maybe it's stuck in, in old temptations. Maybe it's stuck in this kind of generational pattern that's made its way down through the years in your family life. And at the end of this road, it is despair. What do I do when I realize I can't fix myself? And so you feel like Paul, who says at the end of the chapter, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And sadly, Romans 7 is the experience that many Christians have of following Jesus. 
Many Christians are stuck in this Romans 7 feeling of being paralyzed and being under this kind of crushing weight of guilt, shame, failure. But listen, listen to Paul. Right after he asks that question, who will deliver me? He says this, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as Paul moves from Romans 7 into Romans 8, if I were to summarize what he's saying, I'd say this, you are alive. You are not stuck in a body of death. You are alive. Christ has set you free. And so what are you going to do with the life that you've been given? You are alive. So here's where we're headed this morning. Imagine that you are waking up in a hospital room, waking up fresh out of this near-death experience. You open your eyes. What's the first thing you say to the first person you see? What happened? What happened to me? That's what Paul's going to explain in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8 on page 944. He's going to tell you what happened. And then in verses 5 to 8, he's going to talk about what's happening now. And then in verses 9 and 11, he's going to talk about what will happen in the future. Don't forget, you are alive. So let's begin. What happened? What happened is this a triune rescue operation. Read verse 1 with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the Greek, Paul puts that word no right at the front for emphasis. No condemnation. These are some of the most beautiful and compelling words in all of Scripture. And yet... They're some of the most difficult to internalize and believe. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What's Paul saying? Simply put, he's saying this, that God is for you. God is for you. He is by your side. There is no part of God that is against you in any way, no matter how small. God completely in himself is for you in Christ Jesus. And the invitation is open to everyone. He is for you. He is more for you than any friend, than any best friend. He is more for you than any spouse. Or romantic partner. He is more for you than any mom or dad, than any parent, as wonderful as they might be. He is more for you than any school or workplace that loves what you produce for them. He is by your side. There is no one in the cosmos who is more for you than God. And the way that you know this is not simply because this is what you want to believe about the God who created everything. It's not simply based on your feelings, but it's based on the historical fact of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Turn to verses three and four. They talk about how this rescue operation happened. And notice the actors here, all three persons of the Trinity, which is to say it's not as if you know, God was upset with you, but Jesus was by your side, and the Spirit was just kind of somewhere in that arrangement. But it's all three persons of the Trinity working together, because this is the only thing that the one God can do. 
Theologians call it inseparable operations, inseparable works. Whatever the one God does, all three persons of the Trinity do together in harmony. This is what Paul explains. Verse 3, he talks about justification, our being set right with God. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You know the good you ought to do. You can't do it. So God steps in. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Or as your footnote says, as a sin offering, because this word refers to a sacrifice for sin. Paul's talking about the incarnation and about the cross. Jesus came as a human being just like us in every way, yet without sin, in order that he could be a perfect sacrifice and enact this great exchange. He becomes human so that he can say, hey, team, hey, team, humanity, give me everything you have. Give me all of your sin. Give me all of your guilt. I'll take it. Give me all of your shame. Give me all of the condemnation that was coming for you. I'll take that. And then in your place, I'll give you what I have. You can become a beloved son or daughter of God, just as I have always been the Father's beloved Son. The great exchange, that's what's happening on the cross. But that's just the first half of the rescue mission. So stay with me. Pay attention to what Paul says next, verse 4. God does all of this in Christ Jesus in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What's that about? What does it mean that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us? I thought all of Romans 7 was about the fact that we can't fulfill the law. Well, that's true. That's right. That, that is what Paul is saying in, in Romans chapter 7. In your flesh, you cannot fulfill the law. But Paul is saying in Romans 8 that something new has happened, has happened. That in Christ, you are given the same Holy Spirit that dwelt in him. And that now, through the Spirit, you have a new power to overcome sin. You have a new power to overcome evil. You have a new power to fulfill the law as you were always meant to do. God commands us in Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. And that felt like a death sentence, because how can we ever do that? But now, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, that command is a wonderful invitation to step into Christ-likeness. Not on our own, but in the power of the Spirit. Call this process sanctification. It's what the Spirit does to make us holy. That's what sanctification means which means that Jesus didn't just die so that you would be declared holy, but so that you would actually become in yourself righteous and holy before God. And so sanctification happens in the context of justification. It's within the context of being wholly accepted by God that we grow in holiness. Until this chapter in Romans, until this chapter, Paul has only mentioned the Holy Spirit four times in this letter, but here he mentions him 19 times 
This whole chapter is about what the Spirit does in us. In the Spirit, you are alive. You are rescued for holiness. Now, some of us, we have a hard time with that because we hear that word holiness. That doesn't quite sound like good news. We're not sure if we hear holiness. We're not sure if we'd want that. In some way, it doesn't sound like us. It sounds, you know, inauthentic. You know, holiness can have the connotation of a person who's kind of like out of touch with normal people and their experiences. Holiness has this connotation of like someone who's not able to take a joke. This connotation of somebody who's not able to sympathize with others. But that's not what holiness is. Holiness, says Paul throughout these chapters, holiness is about freedom. Freedom from slavery. Freedom from slavery to temptation. Do you know this experience where the temptation arises and as soon as you notice it, you realize, I've already given in. Holiness is about freedom from that. Freedom to say no. Freedom to say yes to God. Holiness is, is about freedom from emotional outbursts where you get triggered and you respond with your words and you immediately regret what comes out of your mouth. Holiness is about freedom from being stuck in that pattern. Holiness is about freedom from defensiveness and the need to be right or to be seen as right. Holiness is about freedom to love the very people you long to love. In a word, holiness is about wholeness. Becoming holy is about becoming the person you were always made to be. That is what you've been rescued for. As we turn to the second part of the sermon, what's happening now in you, verse 5, is that you're being empowered to be holy, empowered for holiness. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. And Paul's drawing this contrast between flesh on the one hand and spirit on the other. So what is flesh? It's not our physical bodies. Our physical bodies are good. Flesh, in this sense, it's our passions, right? It's, it's our pride that absolutely resists an honest appraisal of what's really happening in our lives. Our flesh is jealousy, and our inability to be grateful and enjoy what we've been given, always looking to somebody else, always pitying ourselves. That's what our flesh is. And Paul says in verse 6, what we all know is true, that to set the mind on the flesh is death. Anger, rage, it feels good in the moment when it's burning hot and you feel vindicated, but when it cools down, you feel exhausted feel spent, burnt out. Lust is a hunger that's never satisfied. And the more you indulge lust, the hungrier, the hungrier you become. To set the mind on the flesh is death. It leads nowhere. Nothing good comes from sin. Nothing. But to set the mind on the spirit, Paul says, is life and peace. What does it mean to set your mind on the Spirit? It means to order all of your desires, 
all of your hopes for the future, all of your imagination of the good life, to order all of these things around God's will for you in Christ. Holiness is about wholeness. And so, how do we do this? How do we set our minds on the Spirit? Well, you're doing it right now. This is what we do week by week. We set our minds on the great story of God, this great story that we are welcomed to be a part of. We center our minds on, on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We set our minds on the Spirit throughout our week as we continue in this posture of receptivity, of prayer, of Scripture reading, listening to the Lord, redirecting our, our thoughts and our ambitions around Him. We set our minds on the Spirit day by day as we have opportunities to love those around us, especially the least of these, especially our enemies. Setting your mind on the Spirit continues as you repent of your mistakes and turn once again to the way of Jesus. That's what it looks like to set your mind on the Spirit. But don't get this part wrong. Don't think that God declares you righteous and now you're on your own. Because then you would be stuck in a Romans 7 life. Sanctification is what the Spirit does in you as you set your mind on Him. So you can think of your life like a sailboat, right? A sailboat has no power in and of itself unless it's a nice sailboat and it has a motor. Okay, but don't think about that one. Think about like just a normal, <laughs> traditional sailboat. It just sits in the water until what happens? Until the wind comes. And the Holy Spirit is the very breath of God to propel you forward. All you need to do is open the sails, and it's the Holy Spirit who propels you into godliness, into Christ-likeness. The Holy Spirit is who empowers you for holiness. And friends, this is so important, because as I've, as I've been saying, many of us live this Romans 7 life, characterized, not in moments, but regularly, by just consistent failure crushing sense of guilt. I have a friend who followed Jesus and later fell away from his faith. And when we reconnected and talked about it, this is what he asked me. He said, Will, aren't you tired of feeling guilty all the time? Aren't you tired of feeling bad all the time? And I realized that for him, this is what following Jesus was, just a crushing sense of failure. No wonder he walked away from that. That's no way to live. It's also, it's not the life that Paul is describing for the person who's in Christ in Romans 8. Jesus died to give you something better in the here and now. And so if your experience is just regular, crushing, defeat, then that might be a symptom that something is wrong. And so here are a few thoughts for you, a few kind of practical thoughts. Number one, we have to practice discernment. And so as you go through your day, you know, you have impressions, how you feel about yourself, how others feel about you. And one of those impressions is how God feels towards you. What's his disposition towards you? Maybe as you sit down to pray, what's the sense that you have of God? And if your sense is one of disappointment, 
or ambivalence or or kind of this you know this voice of like oh glad you're here where have you been if that's what you sense from the lord as you sit down to pray as you go through your day then you need to resist that voice and you need to claim the promise of romans 8 verse 1 there is no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus no condemnation you need to resist the voice of the evil one god is for you it's the evil one who wants to confuse you and tell you that's not true but number two maybe the problem of feeling guilty of feeling stuck all the time is actually because you're repeatedly following into habitual sin and if that's the case the remedy is repentance because that is a perilous place to be. Habitual sin numbs you to, to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It numbs you to the gracious voice of God. But if you're still struggling, then you need more help, plain and simple. And that's what your pastors are for. That's what your res group is for. That's what this community is for. You don't have to stay stuck. The Holy Spirit can free you from habitual sin. Amen? There are many in this congregation that can testify to that. Tell them that you're struggling. Let them offer you a testimony of hope. And thirdly, lastly, I'd say this, that there is such a thing as scrupulosity. You know, scrupulosity is like a, an overactive conscience. Scrupulosity sees sin in your life where there really isn't sin in your life. It's, it's a manifestation of anxiety, like, oh, I know that there is more that I should repent of. I know it's in there somewhere. And, and what scrupulosity does is it just keeps you in this limbo, this place of insecurity. And that voice of scrupulosity, that nitpicking voice, that is not the voice of God. God knows how to speak clearly to you. That's what he does in his word. That nitpicking voice, again, that is the voice of the enemy to prevent you from experiencing the mercy of God. And so again, this is something that your pastors, your friends in this church, your res group, something that Christian therapists can help you to overcome. Because the gift of God in Christ is the spirit who brings what? Life and peace, not despair. The Romans 8 life is a life of empowerment. It's not a life of perfection, not perfection in this life, but real growth, real transformation. Which brings us to our closing verses this morning. You've been rescued for holiness by the triune God. You've been empowered for holiness. And what you have to look forward to is the finished work of holiness. Until now, look at verse 9. Until now, Paul has talked about flesh and spirit as like these two options, these two roads that you can go down. But in verses 9 to 11, he talks about them as two realms, two places where you stand. And he does this to give you assurance. Listen to verse 9. He says, you, church, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Notice the language there. You are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you, completely surrounded inside and out by the gracious love of God. Look at verse 11 and notice again the triune language. That if the Spirit of Him, God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, then He, the Father who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This promise, it's not just about physical resurrection, not just about life after death, as good as that is, but this is about the restoration of your whole person. This is about the restoration of all of your thoughts, of all of your desires, of your whole soul, of your whole personality, of your whole way of being, of your whole body. For those who are in Christ, this is your destination. If you're in Christ, if you believe and you're baptized, this is the end of the story. Complete freedom from sin and death and evil. There's no other place to go. God desires not just that you would be declared holy, not just that you would begin this process of being made holy, but that you would be set free once and for all, justified, sanctified, and then glorified on the day of Jesus. So if that is your destiny, then like the Snickers commercial, why wait? It's kind of corny, but, but seriously, think about it. If your destiny is holiness, why wait? What good can come from the flesh? Nothing. So open the sails through prayer, through scripture, through repentance, through love. And allow the Spirit of God to propel you forward and enjoy the life and peace offered to you by God in Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.